Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Please take your seats quickly, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Tennis Weekly with Joel, Kim, and Chris. On today's Tour Catch-Up, sponsored by DownloadTennis.com. Carlos Alcaraz defends his Madrid crown. Sabalenka gets revenge on Sviantec. And Andy Murray wins his first challenger title in over 17 years. Chris, today is the 8th of May and we are here to catch up on the week in tennis at Tennis Weekly HQ. The Madrid Open has come and gone. Arena Sabalenka and Carlos Alcaraz are your champions. The Italian Open in Rome is just about to get underway on Wednesday and there is much to discuss at Tennis Weekly HQ. We've got Andy Murray winning a Challenger Tour title the first time in over 17 years. We're going to be talking about Emma Raducanu as well and her Instagram post about surgery. And we're also going to be chatting a bit more about the Challenger circuit and looking at the role it plays on the tour because it feels like it is the talk of the town at the moment. So we've got all that to look forward to. Rome as well. We have waited to make sure both the draws are out so we can give our predictions because they're obviously 100% foolproof. But yeah, Chris, how how are you? Kim is not here. She's, as listeners might know, it's Eurovision week this week. So surprise, surprise, she is in Liverpool having a great time. So it's again, it's just us at the helm. Well, yeah, Kim is at Eurovision. She's there before Eurovision's <laughs> even on. I think she's I at a rehearsal. I'm so, so confused. For me, Eurovision was just like one night on a Saturday night, but apparently there's like semi-finals, qualifiers, qualifiers of qualifiers. Yeah, it's, yes. it's for long. She's seeing it all. I think it's a bit like, I'll explain it to like a tennis tournament, Joel. You have to enter the qualifying <laughs> to make it to the main draw. Well, is there a lucky loser? I hope there's a lucky loser in the, uh, the main that event. makes it all the way to the final. <laughs> it could happen. We've seen it happen this mm. week, haven't we? Yes, I mean, a lucky loser making it all the way to the final at the Madrid Open. It's certainly been a memorable tournament for some of the good reasons, but it's also been memorable, I feel, for some of the bad reasons, um, which we're going to get into. But before we do kind of discuss that, we're going to talk about our highlights of the week from last week. And I'm going to go first because my favourite... uh, (laughs) My favourite part that I saw was on Judy Murray's Instagram account and, you know, Andy Murray out playing a challenger in France. Mum Judy obviously wants to be there looking for a flight and she finds one. Ryanair, $14.99. I'm having some of that from Presswick in Scotland to Marseille. I I feel like we can all appreciate a a cheap flight. Yeah, I hope you were. I think with Judy, I think um, I looked at the flight to see if it was a real flight. It was she was having us on. She's also not paid for by Ryanair. But I do think what is particularly interesting is that um, she was able to fly and make it there in time for the match mm. because the, the flight landed at 12.15. So we do it love to give to you... It was meant to be. It was meant to be. <laughs> and um, then she jetted back that evening. So little trip to see um, Andy pick up uh, a Challenger title. So 
we love mm. to see that. And Chris, what was your what was your highlight? Because obviously, my my head as a Murray fan was in France, but I believe yours was in Spain. Yes, mine was in Spain, and it was something that I thought was quite jolly at the time, and then it all became a little bit sinister. So when I was um, watching, uh, I think it was the semi-final match, and then I saw a lot of hoo-ha happen as um, this giant cake was wheeled out for Carlos Alcaraz's birthday. And I thought, this is lovely, mm. a lovely cake. All good so and it's far? Such a, yeah, all good. And then I saw on Twitter that it was also Sabalenka's birthday on the 5th of May, but her cake was much smaller. And this then became the Twitter storm to end all Twitter storms because it became symbolic of something much greater than just cake. It became symbolic of the disparity between the two different mm. tours in terms of pay, in terms of treatment between the WTA and the ATP because Sabalenka's cake was a lot smaller in the defense of the cake, I do think that um, Carlos's was large enough to feed the entire um, stadium. It was for everyone who was there. You know, it might be a party bag, take a piece. <laughs> um, whereas Sabalenka didn't have a match that day. Mm. But then the Twitter storm happened and tournament director, which we normally think is one of those wonderful roles where you wander about, you know, you shake a few hands, have a nice time. Um, but he, he kind of went into this debate um, and said he was surprised by this reaction after this gesture. Um, Carlos had just won a match to reach the final. Two, he was playing on centre court. And three, the tournament's played in Spain, even though it's an international event. And then he tweeted a picture of Holger Rune, who got his cake on the 29th, which was even smaller than Sabalenka's. So three cakes Ooh. and one disastrous tweet, because mm. I do think um, it does call into question a couple of things. Um, but also he did tweet that in response to Azarenka, who said it couldn't be more accurate of the treatment. So I think he missed the point that this is much more to do with the fact that it's not even between the tours, rather that they're criticizing the cakes that were given, which is obviously a nice gesture. But I mean, where do you stand on cake gate? Joel? Yeah, I mean, this feels like it got well um, out of proportion, but at the same time, it's certainly a very visual metaphor, I feel, of the, the inequalities at the moment on the you know on the ATP and WTA tours we've we've fully seen that um in Madrid uh you know this week you know the tournament director Feliciano Lopez yes uh, i think he's had a very he's had a very tough time of it and i do genuinely think just just on the topic of of tournament directors i've noticed a trend and i fully get this that you know, former players, you know, much heralded players, Grand Slam winners, Amelie Moresmo at the French Open get put, um, you know, into these roles. And I feel like they're there for to add a bit of pizzazz and some high profile, you know, credibility and fame um, to the organisation of a tournament. But I think also you've got to remember that like this is a job and there are serious things that are at stake here. And if things go wrong... I don't know, is a tennis player who hasn't been in event organisation until like six months ago, for example, is that necessarily the best person for the role? Could you, maybe, maybe should they be in more kind of ambassadorial role as a role rather than a role maybe that, that has more of an impact? Because certainly the Madrid Open this week has been, yeah, there has been a few controversies. Kate Gate for one of them, but Chris, the two others I want to talk about are, well, first of all, is the... Ladies doubles final ceremony. Well, I say ceremony, not much of a ceremony really happened. We had Jesse Pagula, Coco Goff, Victoria Azarenka and Beatrice Haddad-Meyer played a great match, um, collected, collected their trophies. 
and that was it. They were given no uh, platform to speak. And again, similar to Kategate, this caused a massive storm um, on Twitter. I mean, where, where do you stand on this situation? Because this is certainly the first time I've ever heard of a final happening, a ceremony happening, but a ceremony without the chance for the players to, uh, you know, to thank the crowds, to thank each other and to thank their teams. It did happen once previously this year, I've been informed. It did happen um, in the Middle East. Uh, I think that was um, in a tournament in Abu Dhabi. But I think what's very um, kind of shocking about this is that it's clear from player responses that they weren't given the chance to speak. It definitely was the case that they were made aware that they wouldn't be. This is not normal, as you say. And all of them wanted to thank kind of the... um, well, they want to thank everybody, they want to thank the ball kids, the tournament officials, the sponsors, everyone who made the event happen. But it seems like because of a couple of hiccups that they've had, which I'd say that tweet from Felisano Lopez is more than a hiccup. Mm. But because of that, they weren't given the opportunity. And players like Andre Burr have expressed their shock as well, saying it's so unfortunate that they weren't given a chance. It's sad and unacceptable. And I think it is that sad and unacceptable when Rublev and Kachanov came away with the title and were given the opportunity So I think there are things where obviously this tournament is able to do things right in terms of prize money. It is equal prize money. Um, But I do think that all of this has been lost on the tournament directors here and the fact that the cake was symbolic of the difference in pay across the tour. And in Rome, the point is made with the prize money there where the women take away less than half if you win the the title. So I think it's a case where when it comes to the treatment, where you can treat people like for like, you absolutely should. Um, and it just seems like an absolute um, own goal in that sense to uh, to try and kind of shoot yourself in the foot yeah. and not give Azarenka the microphone. It makes no sense whatsoever. Yeah, and and to me, it's almost like they did the hard they did the hard bit right. You know, we've seen a lot of tournaments. I think, particularly on the kind of the prize money and the distribution of it, in mixed events, it be completely unequal. Um, I think you know we're going to Rome next week, and we were talking, you know, before recording about how unbalanced it is there but to get something for me that is so accepted and is something the fans want to not give them that platform is is really shocking and i think just to build on that i think what's also shocking is we've i don't think we've had an official response from the tournament yet you know it's happened you thought they would kind of try and nip it in the bud potentially but we've still not got an official explanation from it and i really hope it's not you know, wasn't premeditated. And I don't know if there were hopefully other factors at at play and, you know, maybe there were time constraints. I don't know. But I really hope it wasn't premeditated because, um, you know, these players put a lot of time and effort, um, you know, on court for this tournament. They should be given the chance to, you know, to make their their voices heard um, in the arena. Absolutely. And I think... um... You know, that's definitely the case that there was enough time Mm. before the men's final. There was no issue there whatsoever in terms of timing. So it was definitely a decision that was made. Um, And you have to say that uh, it's a very, very unfortunate end to what could have been um, a good tournament. I think, as we said, it didn't get necessarily off to the best start in terms of the first time it's been two weeks, the longer format. And um, the final thing, kind of the nail in the coffin was something that uh, we were all a bit confused by is obviously the the outfits of the ball kids. Mm. I think Madrid was the tournament that was famous for the fact they got yeah, models, the models yeah. and they couldn't just have models, they had to have other people as well. And then they got more backlash when kind of this took off on, on TikTok and for the final, they they completely did a, 
a 180. Instead of the short mini skirts, they, they put them in these long sort of culottes and then cut off the arms of the, the outfit. So it seems to them like, well, an arm is fine, a leg's not fine. Is this okay? Is this not okay? And it's just a big old mess over in Madrid. So hopefully they can learn from this. We can move on from this and we can start talking about the tennis now times have changed and I think you know there was an acceptance and it, sh- it should not have been ever an acceptance I think of having models as as acting as as the ball kids you know I remember that firmly being a thing growing up and, and watching the tournament but now I think they should just just scrap it all together and I, I, I think you know you look at the outfits and I you, you do wonder are they sexualizing a role that it's just not there to be to be sexualized I think they really need to go back to basics and it needs to be just have ball kids like like everywhere else i don't think there's you know there's nothing more to it than that but they've certainly again dug themselves into a hole that um you know that there's received backlash and as a result it seems it seems to be that for the final they had to have a completely different setup i mean it's just so stupid i mean there's two weeks the tournament and then on the final day when all the cameras are on you decide that you're going to do a quick outfit change Mm. um it doesn't really um, make sense. And obviously it was only for the men's matches where they did have the models. And, you know, that ship has long sailed. It was never Absolutely. okay at the time. It's not okay now. And I do think it does make the question. I mean, we've interviewed tournament directors before who are highly professional, highly skilled at the job that they do. Um, and I'm not sure that all players have the experience mm. or the know-how or the savviness um, or the restraint when it comes to social media to be able to put on a great event and also... Um, learn from what's happened and I think that's something that I mean with Moresmo uh, saying that women's tennis is less appealing I mean and then with this I think you have to be very careful because what happens in these situations is it's never men's tennis that gets discredited it's always women's tennis and that's um, a pro- real problem yes it's uh, it's a tricky one and and you know we've got obviously Laura Robson coming up as a tournament organizer in in Nottingham on the grass court season so I do think it's a you know it's a viable pathway having said that I think she'll nail it for former players we love Laura exactly Robson. <laughs> she'll, she'll she'll nail it but um it's interesting to see but yeah as you said certainly it's a slippery slope if it if one thing goes wrong it can snowball very quickly and unfortunately I feel like we've seen that off the kind of the tennis court and from the the performance side of it in in Madrid but let's 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 do kind of talk about about the, the tennis that did happen. We're going to start with the men. Carlos Alcaraz has defended his Madrid title, faced Jan Leonard Struff, lucky loser, went out in, in qualifying to Karatsev. I mean, completely by chance, defeated, then defeated Karatsev in the main draw um, in the semi finals to make the final. Um, but yeah, Alcaraz coming through in three sets 6 4, 3 6, 6 3. Chris, he's backed up his title from uh, you know a few weeks ago in in Barcelona. Does this just kind of cement what we know that he is now the nailed-on favourite, um, or you know, he will be going into Roland Garros as as the clear favourite for the title? I mean, if he wasn't already the favourite, mm. he certainly is now because we've talked about the fact he can play on any court. I mean, this is a court that's caused Rafael Nadal a great deal of problems over the years. It's a court which does not necessarily suit his game, and you'd say that they're relatively similar sort of game mm. styles obviously different there are differences but I mean it's it's one where we've talked about his serve not necessarily always being his strength and how it's becoming much more of a strength and it just showed you that even when he wasn't having the best service day when it came to the final he was still able to, to get the mm. win and I think that's so impressive I think the best players are able to win or find a way to win when they're not playing their best tennis and he's proven it time and time again that when he is playing his best tennis he's almost untouchable and when he isn't he's still got a very good chance of winning these matches so I think for me, the only question is when it comes to 
you know, best of five sets. And if the conditions are particularly um, heavy, it might be as well, or or, or particularly, um, maybe actually particularly speedy could be the issue. But to be honest, I think in Paris, I think the conditions will, will suit him. I think we'll find out more about that in Rome because that is the most similar clay court event to mm. Roland Garros. But I don't know, Joel, what you're thinking, but I'm not going to be betting against Alcaraz unless Djokovic does something incredible. Uh, this week in Rome. I mean, it doesn't feel like any, you know, he's had a few injury niggles this season, but again, that doesn't feel like a a chink in the armour at the moment. And um, I, I do think, you know, this final, and, and to be honest, this week, I think there have been times when the level that Alcaraz has shown has not necessarily been um, as high as, say, in Barcelona, like in, in this final. But the fact that he's able to win ugly um, when he's not playing his best tennis, I think you need that when you come to a Grand Slam, you're playing across two weeks, best of five set tennis, you're not necessarily going to be able to bring your full level, um, you know, at, at all times. So I think it's scary to see that how well he can play, um, yeah, when he's not necessarily on. Um, I do think he was helped a little bit by by Struth. I mean, Struth's had obviously a fantastic couple of weeks in, in Madrid, particularly, I think, with his, his big serve coming to the net, his volleys, he's got great, um, you know, he's got great record in, in doubles. Um I've got to be honest, though. When I was I was watching kind of some some of this back on on TV, Daniela Hantakova said that the court was being sprayed with water a, a lot, like twice. I think she said maybe bef- before the match started. Yes. And to me, it felt like they are just literally doing everything to put this in Alcaraz's favor because Striff's first serve um, is a big part of the reason why he was able, to, I think, to make the final and. Although his first surf percent was was down, and I think that was one of the reasons that that Alcaraz came out with the the victory, they certainly it certainly felt like again, and maybe perhaps another misstep by Madrid is that they they wanted Alcaraz to win badly, but perhaps too badly. I I think that might be the case. I mean, if you look at the size of his cake, it would make it seem like maybe they did <laughs> want him to win really badly. Mm. Uh, reminding that it is is paid in Spain, but I mean. Anything that Daniela Hanchakova says, I do think um, is pretty valid. She's got great takes on things. And I mean, she knows her way around a clay court. And it's not common that you would completely drench a clay court. Um, obviously, it's very warm in um, in Madrid. It's very warm at this time of year. I think it's hitting 30 degrees this week at times. Um, but I mean, the slower the court, the far less effective uh, the biggest weapon for Struff would be. So... I do, th- I do think that is probably something that they might have been doing. But I mean, she said that wherever you play for the home favourites, they will try and do what they can. Whether that's crowds cheering, we've seen that this week or what, whatever. I think it's a case where there's always going to be some funny things that do play into the home favourites. Um, so they, they did say, though, when she was being asked about this, if that helped when um, Henman played at the Queen's Club. And he said it didn't work like that for him. So I think maybe maybe with grass, I mean, I'm not sure what you yeah. can do. You can't make it grow any quicker, can you, if you mm. want a slow grass court? I mean, I did I did enjoy, I think, you know, Struff, I think, tactically played it very well. I think he's a very, you know, he's been around the block a few times. He's a very good player on his day. And you could see what his tactic was. He didn't want to get embroiled in those kind of long rallies with Alcaraz from the back of the court. He wanted to use his big first serve, come in on that, keep the point short. And you could see Alcaraz was trying to get himself in the rally because I felt like he was standing quite far behind the baseline. I mean, do you feel like that's a tactic that it obviously didn't, it worked for Struth for, you know, a set and a, a, set and a bit, I, w- I would say. Do you think that's a, 
like the best tactic to to work against Alcaraz, or do you think there are going to be players who could go toe to toe with him from the baseline and come out the victor? Ah, uh, that's, that's a great question. I think the way that he played, I thought, was very smart mm. because he actually used the fact that court was slow at times to his advantage by kind of throwing in like a, a slow kicker. And at times, Carlos was so far back, he was almost kind of right back to the wall. So, and then it gave him time to come in. So I think he was mixing up his serve a little bit in that respect, because obviously it wasn't that quicker a surface as it always sort of um, had been sort of earlier in the week. So I think it is a great plan against him. I do think that, you know, it's, it's sort of the, the Maxime Cressy approach when it comes yeah. to this. I think obviously... And it, took, it takes the drop shot away as well, I feel, from, from Alcaraz, which is, I feel like he's the best, I actually think he's one of, if not the best drop shotter on the, on the men's tour at the moment. And if someone's coming into the net, like every, every other point, again, it's going to take one weapon away from his arsenal. But then I think that was also what was quite interesting was that he did throw in the drop shot quite regularly. Mm. But I think uh, what was impressive was that obviously Struve is a very, very tall guy and he was still able to get there. But Alcaraz had the answers. I think he does back up the drop very well. Um, but no, I think what, what what is a good plan and I think what, players should do much more of is these players that return from so far back it does give you time to throw in you know a serve and volley yeah and i the underarm serve the underarm (laughs) serve i mean it's making a comeback but you watch players play against medvedev and you just think you've got to Mm. come in at least once um to make him think about what his return is going to be because it does give yourself the opportunity but i'm really pleased for struff in terms of the result he's had because it was the first time um since the atp tour was formally um, brought into existence that someone has played six three-set matches in one event. Wow. So, I mean, to go through all of that, to have lost in qualifying, and then to come back and push um, someone, the world number two, as far as he did in that way, I mean, I just think it's um, a, an incredible feat. And we shouldn't, we should make sure that, like, we give that enough sort of... Um, credence because it's just it's, it's incredible really especially considering he kind of did it out of nowhere yeah it does not happen very often he became the third lucky loser to go uh, to the semi-finals um joining thomas johansson in 2004 toronto and lucas puy uh, in rome in in 2016 so yeah it does not happen very often but yeah still came up unfortunately against carlos alcaraz who is just looking so so formidable before we kind of move on chris are you? No one's really talking about it at the moment. But do you feel like Alcaraz could go undefeated on on the clay? Uh, he has actually lost on clay this year. Undefeated sorry. on the European. I mean, sorry, clay. undefeated on the European clay up to the French Open mm, with Rome to come. Uh, doing eager. Let's have a think. Um, I mean, it's hard to bet against him. I think it might be good for him mm. if I'm honest to, to maybe not get one because I think. Um, you know, that would add that extra level of pressure that could be really difficult yeah. when it comes to the French, you know, being the out-and-out favourite, um, which I think if Djokovic does play well in Rome, if Nadal's in the draw, I think that would also help him because all the attention would be on him. Whereas kind of at these tournaments now, he is the superstar mm. at the tournament. So I think to take the pressure off, I think it wouldn't be a bad thing, but I can also see him, you know, I, I predicted him for this uh, for this week in Rome, spoiler alert, but... I think he's gonna. He's just so tough to beat these days. <laughs> I can see a lot of kind of consistency happening, and I can see that consistency also happen um, on the women's circuit because at the moment I feel like we're just getting 
Well, we just got it. We had another Sabalenka versus Shiontek uh, final. Uh, this time, Sabalenka coming out with the victory. I think that was her first ever victory against Igor Shiontek on clay. Uh, three sets, very high quality match. Very much toing and throwing. It felt like one one player broke, then one player broke back, and um, yeah, Sabalenka came through six three three six six three. I mean, Chris, this is a this was a fantastic match. This rivalry, I feel, is truly blossoming what did you feel like Sabalenka did better versus Stuttgart last week where Shiontek came out as the victor I think this week she's just been striking the ball that bit better mm. um I, when I've been watching her matches it is breathtaking how hard she's hitting that ball um and she's it's pinpoint so I think she just completely overpowered her mm. Do you think the conditions helped? Do you think the conditions helped in that sense? I know we spoke about the kind of the altitude of, of Madrid. Do you feel like that helped Sabalenka as much as it did? Do you think it hindered Shiontek a little bit? I definitely think that Iga prefers a slightly slower court mm. for sure. I think she's a bit more Rafa like in that sense, where Madrid wasn't always a happy hunting ground for her either. She obviously hasn't played it very much. She skipped it last year. Um, I think she played some really great tennis to get to the to get to the final, but. You know, playing on a sunny day versus a late evening is going to be a very different experience. And I think that's something where in the final, the balls were going that bit quicker. Um, obviously, she won her first Grand Slam title in the cold October of Paris. And she was playing a lot of her matches. Um, I think two of them finished after midnight. She made a nod to that in her speech that the scheduling hadn't been ideal for her. And um, it's true. So I think she hadn't had that many matches out in, in the sun playing against a player who'd been out in the sun and who hits big, I think, condition-wise, it was a bit of a challenge for her. And, I mean, that match could have gone either way. I mean, three-all in the third. It's just great that we got such a great contest and we got another great three-set final. You know, I think the Australian Open final was fantastic and it's great to see that amongst the three players of Rabakina, Sabalenka and Sviontek, we're getting highly competitive um, matches at the end of the tournament. Yeah, I agree. I think it's I think it's interesting from, from Sviontek's point of view that... I, I do feel like she is able to defeat um, your players in the earlier rounds the most comfortably of those big players. I feel like Sabalenka or Rabakina still got like a, a set blip in them before they, you know, might come through with a victory. But I still feel like the 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 the, the kind of the headlines of, of Shiontek is like, oh, the, the, the bakery is open, you know, up till kind of like the semifinals or, or the final. And it just shows, I think, with this final, as much as how easy I feel like she is able to defeat the players in the earlier rounds, it can be only a few points here or there when it comes to the big names at the end of the tournament. Yeah, I mean, that's that's tennis. I mm. think it's so... But she's not as clear is... a favourite, I feel, as people may like make her out to be. Yeah, I think this year um, has been a bit different from last year. Obviously, going into the French, she was undefeated. She was on a a winning streak obviously that ended on the grass um so i think it is a very different situation she did have a little bit of time off as well um but she has actually played more tournaments than sabalenka has this year mm. so um i think it's probably a case that just generally on the tour these players are all at such a high level that it is always going to be condition based it's always going to be how you're able to play on the day um and i think what's so interesting is that you know ego used to be kind of untouchable in these finals and there's been multiple occasions now where she has she has people have got the better of her um and i think maybe her resolve is is that little bit lower and i think the players now have that belief that they can do it because someone else has you know kujikov obviously kicked that off mm. um in estrava last year 
And then results like when Jessica Pagula had that breakthrough with the United Cup is that you, you can do it. She is beatable. And I think players now really do think when they go on the court, they've got a chance. Whereas I think during the winning streak, they thought, I've it's not impossible. no chance here. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, you talk about um, the different types of players that, that Sviontek has come unstuck against. I feel like the ball striking capabilities of a Sabalenka and a, and a Krachikova, you know, back in, in, in Ostrava. Do you feel like that's the way through against Sviontek? Is that the only way through, do you feel, to get a victory over, over Igor Sviontek at the moment? I think the serve is key. Mm. The second serve. Both serves. You've got to serve, well, for, for her opponents, you've got to serve her off the court and you've got to attack the second serve. Um, and you've got to put her on the defense from the off because she's a fantastic defender. I think she's the best mover on the tour, her and Coco without question. Um, but I think it's, it's one where if you take the time away from her, then she doesn't have as much time on her shots. And I also think that it does have a mental effect on her in the sense that it's not on her racket. You know, she needs people to miss at that point when they're playing that well. And, and I think that's what we saw when um, uh, Rebecca took her out. And I think also we saw from Sabalenka that um, these are players who are playing their game and not really thinking about necessarily who's on the other side of the net. Yeah, it's uh, it'll be fascinating to see, and you know I do enjoy. I think what's so great is that Shiontek is such a such a great learner. She's learning on the court, she's learning off the court. She's always striving. I feel to better herself, and I like that she's not had it all her own way. Because I think that you know up to this moment, it's exciting, isn't it? It makes it exciting, and, and it's better. It's almost. I feel like this result is almost bigger than the tournament because people are like, oh, okay. Well, Sabalenka can now beat Shiontek on clay that puts that doubt in that mind. It creates more of that intrigue when it comes to all eyes on the, the French, French. Open. Mm, exactly. exactly. And I was, I was um, looking at some, some things and it just reminds me of, you know, uh, when you see that these, these big three and when we had Serena, Maria, uh, the Maria Sharapova that is, and Victoria Zarenka, when we had players who were putting together these performances, I think it's the first time since 2012 that a player has reached at least the quarterfinal mm. at every single tournament in their first eight. Um, and that's um, so impressive. And I think we're seeing that from all of these players, all of those three, that they are always in those latter stages. And I think it's quite refreshing because we've had an awful lot of uh, very different results um, in the last couple of years. And I think it's nice to see um, rivalries and matches that mm. do get played regularly because it does mean players are getting better and that they are kind of having these entertaining encounters and playing really great tennis. So... I'm here for it, Joel. <laughs> yeah, me, me too. I do think, yeah, generally we've seen on the WTA tour this season, the added element is consistency. And off that consistency, you can build, you know, these dreams and these realities around One the v big two. three. And yes, Rabakin is here in the mix and, and so Sabalenka who can defeat Shiontek who's the world number one um, I feel like that consistency has been really really key to kind of creating these rivalries and it seems that it's it's blossoming particularly on the clay between Sabalenka and Shiontek and we'll have to see if it continues in Rome um, or at the French Open but it was great to see um, we have had some other tournaments happen um, over the last week or so and we need to talk Chris about Andy Murray because he has won the challenger in Provence, defeated Tommy Paul in three sets in the final. Two six, six one, six two. I was I was on my live scores app uh, from Lake Como. Uh, paying attention to that first set, and I was thinking there is absolutely no way, there is no way he is coming back from this. But 
Of course, Andy Murray does what Andy Murray does, loves a three-set challenge. Um, and yeah, he's won his first challenger title in over 17 years. What What do you make of this? Would you say now his clay season is, is back on track with a, a challenger title? Or do we have to take this with a pinch of salt to, to just kind of remind ourselves, reality check ourselves, that this is the level below the ATP tour? I... I'm very, very pleased for him. <laughs> um, super pleased for him. Well, does I it think matter needed... regardless, given all the things that he has been through? I, well, I just, oh, we all love Andy. I just love Andy Murray doing well. And I, <laughs> and I think I was at a point on the clay where I, I'm not sure I could take it, you know? And so I think it's so nice that um, rather than kind of not get the match practice and not get the time on court that he needs, he's been able to go and mm. play himself into a bit of form yeah. because... He's, he was playing pretty well. I think the standard of opponent he played was obviously, we're not talking top tier until the final. And when it comes to Tommy Paul on clay, we're still not talking yeah. top tier. We're talking a player still... who wanted to stay at home and not play Monte Carlo. Yeah, but yeah, exactly. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, he's, he's in the top 20. Yeah. It's a big deal. It's his third top 20 win this year. Mm. And he says like, we're going to build on this. Like, and we go on. It's very much a case that um, losing in Madrid was I think a bit of a real- reality check yeah. to him. Blessing in disguise? I think it's a blessing in disguise that like you can't just turn up to these events having mm. not really played on clay for however number of years, I think best part of six years, and expect the results to come. And so I think it's been a really sensible decision from him and his team. I think it's a fantastic result. And I really hope in Rome that he's able to, you know, push on. He's got Fognini round one, a very winnable match. Um and I think it'd be great to see him, you know, pick up a couple of wins, get a few points, get that ranking up. And, <laughs> and then make his way to see... another challenger in... Uh, <laughs> well, Serviton. Oh, yeah, Serviton. Yeah, we'd love that. Yeah. Serviton, you know, <laughs> number one seed. But um, hopefully, uh, you know, he's pushing towards a seeded at the Grand Slam mm. and, and that would be something that would really help him um, kind of get further into those second weeks if he can. Yeah, I mean, that's got to be, that has got to be the goal. And another player who has had a very good week is one of your favourites, Sloane Stevens, uh, has won her first WTA 125 title, uh, defeated Greet Minnan in straight sets. So who knows? Is, is that another player who's kind of re- gone about rediscovering her form and, and it not necessarily been there at times this season? I mean, you're saying that in a very kind I'm very, way. I'm being I think very polite here. I've been very, very diplomatic polite. knowing your fandom of uh, of Sloane Stevens. Yeah, her, her results have been non-existent. <laughs> um, I think, again, it's a good one where I think drop down, get your confidence back up. Um, she had a, a bit of a close one uh, where she did lose a set. But um, again, I think it's a great one that will hopefully put her in good stead for the rest of the clay season. She's a fantastic clay court player. Um and I think for her to win a title of, of this size is sometimes a bit more impressive from Sloane because we do know she likes a big match. Um, she hasn't always been able to put the results together when there aren't kind of, uh, well, there isn't a Serena Williams on the other side of the net or someone who is a top player. So it's great to see her moving up to number 36 in the rankings. And um, no, I think it's a, a, a positive building block. That's what I think for all of these results, mm. it's a positive uh, step in the right direction and hopefully they can all back it up because um, losing early in Madrid has given them the opportunity to get some matches under their belt. Yeah, I think that's been one of the better things I think of the two-week format is that they've at least made sure that there are 
alternative tournaments that, that players can face, even if they weren't necessarily going to be playing in that Masters level event, or if they, you know, succumb to defeat early, at least they've got alternatives so they're not just kind of on the practice courts for, um, you know, for, for too long. So yeah, great to see that. Soranus Castella as well, winning the, the 125k in, in Catalonia, another great result. And it just shows, I think, Chris, we're going to be getting onto it in the second half, that the, the Challenger Tour or the Tour Below the ATP and WTA proper, it is it is fully blossoming at the moment, I feel, with, you know, Grand Slam champions there, Saronica Stayers, uh, you know, regular mainstay on the on the WTA tour. Um, it's just great to see them, I think, being put in these environments. You wouldn't necessarily expect to see them. Wow, I mean, it, f- it felt a bit more like 250 week for us on the pod, <laughs> didn't it? You know, we've got the Masters mm. and the 250s going on. What's going mm. on? The level's too high. Maybe, but... maybe we need to, in the future, think about more just devoting a section to the to the Challenger circuit. Um, yeah, we're we're gonna have to wait. We'll we'll have to wait and see. But um, yeah, we're gonna be talking more about the uh, Challenger circuit in the second half. So we're gonna take a quick break now. But do join us when we will be discussing the role challengers play on the ATP Tour, Emma Raducanu's surgery announcement on social media, and also looking ahead to the Italian Open in Rome, which will include our famous predictions. So do not go anywhere. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome back to the Tennis Weekly Podcast, sponsored by DownloadTennis.com. And now we're going to move on to par for the courts, Chris. I've got a par for the courts for you. It's a highest a highest Fantastic. number. It's been a while, Joel. <laughs> highest number wins because no, no Kim here. Um, yeah, you're going to be by yourself. Highest number wins. Who am I competing against? Oh, sorry. You're competing against the number I'm going to set you. So you're sort of competing against me, the, 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 the taskmaster. Right. Okay. So let's see what we can do. <laughs> Right, so your topic is, and for our listeners as well, you probably maybe could have guessed it. Um, the Italian mm. Open is coming up, and I would like you to name any of the ladies singles champions from the year 2000 to 2022. I have counted the number, and there are 14. There are 14 players in total. Um, and I'm going to set par for the courts at 10 then. I'm going to set it at 10. Okay. From 2000, here we go. We'll start with uh, Iga Svontek, who's won it for the last two years. Correct answer, yes. I believe the year before that, Simona Halep won it in 2000. 
correct. Yes. 2020, yes. Uh, oh, yeah, two, yeah, 2020, of course. Sorry. Um, God, that would have been... Yeah, it's not that, been around that, that long. Yeah. Yeah, Eagles won it for 20 years. Um, I think Pliskova, Karolina Pliskova won it in 2019. Very good. I mean, very quickly, can you remember who she beat in that final? I I don't know. Who was it? It was Johanna Conta. Oh, it was her clay, her clay <laughs> era. Yes. Yes. Uh, yes. Yep. So, yeah, Pliskova, yeah, that is a correct answer, 2019. And then I'm not sure, but I'm not going to do an order because okay, I'm okay. running out. But so I know that Svitolina has won it multiple times. That is correct. Yes, 2017 and 2018. So that's four correct oh, answers. That is chronological. I know Serena's won it. Correct answer. Yes, Serena Williams. How many times do you think Serena has won it? Oh, I'd say three? Four times. Uh, oh, Serena wow. Williams won it four. The last of those being in 2016. So yes, that is a correct answer. Uh, Sharapova has won it multiple times. Correct. She's a three-time winner. Uh, the last one back in 2015. Safina has won Rome. And famously, she's won Rome and Madrid. Isn't that quote from Serena? That's how I remember. Dinara Safina is a correct answer. She actually lost the final, uh, but she also won one as well in 2009. So, yep. Martina Hingis has won it. Correct. Yes, she actually beat Dinara uh, Safina uh, in 2006. That did help me, Joel. <laughs> that clear. I remember that one. That was a um, not a great match, that one. That's eight. Yep. Uh, Jankovic. Jankovic has definitely won. Yelena Jankovic, correct answer. Yes, twice a champion. So that is not... I mean, we're already here. That is nine. So one more. Ten. One oh. more for par for the courts. Well, I think Kim Kleisters has won it. Kim Kleisters? Correct answer. Oh. Yes. <laughs> Very good. 2003. And I think I think I can get one more. That brings you up to ten. Yeah. Any 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 more? I, I set myself for eleven. I've seen this week um, on on Twitter. So this is cheating slightly. I have seen on Twitter this week that uh, this was the biggest title that Yelena Dokic won. Very good. Yes, Yelena Dokic back in two thousand and one uh, was a correct answer. As a, as a couple more, a very rogue one in twenty ten, which I'm going to get onto in a sec. But you could have had Monica Seles uh, in the year two thousand. Did Enan ever win it? No, I don't think she did. No. So Justine Enan was an incorrect answer. Venus Williams did win it, but that was back in nineteen ninety nine. So yeah, Monica Seles, Yelena uh, Dokic, Serena Williams, Kim Kleisters. Amelie Moresmo. Goodness. Yep. Twice a champion. Martina Hingis, Yelena Jankovic, Dinara Safina. Did Patty Schneider ever win it? Nope. She lost in the final in 2005. Serena Williams, uh, Yasharapova, Svitolina, Pliskova, Simona Halep, Iga Sviontek. And the final answer, 2010 champion defeated Yelena Jankovic in the final. I mean, this is a very tough one. It'd be impressive. Any of our listeners got this. Spanish player? Um, it's not Carla, is it? No, it is Maria Jose Martinez Sanchez. God, that is a blast that from is the past. An absolute blast from the past. So, um, she was she originated the mullet, didn't she? <laughs> 
Barry Manilow type haircut. <laughs> but yes, you did you did correctly get uh, ten answers and beyond. So you have completed successfully part of the course this week. So well done. Thank goodness. I tell you what, <laughs> if I'd have gone Justin Ennen earlier, yeah, I, would have been I know in real I was. I was sort of waiting slash hoping for that, but it did not. It sadly did not. It just uh, wasn't arrive. in the memory bank. I've watched a lot of tennis <laughs> in Rome. Yes. Uh, well, yeah. Listeners, let us know how you did. Did you do as well as Kiss? Did you get a hundred percent? Let us know. We're going to be moving on to the Tennis Weekly mailbag now, and we had William on Twitter get in touch with us. Hi, Tennis Weekly. Why are so many of the top players dropping down and playing on the ITF stroke challenger circuit? I don't remember a time when these events had such big names, strong draws and large crowds. What is causing this and is it good or bad for tennis? Great, great question. I think challenges, a flavour of the month at the moment. And uh, yeah, Chris, what's your what's your two cents on, uh, on the role of, of challenges at the moment, given what we're seeing with more high-profile players that we would expect perhaps in the top tier of tennis playing down in this second tier? I mean, that is a great question. I mean, it's undeniable that it's happening. I think we've never seen Mm. these sorts of draws and it's regularly kind of a a comment that we say. I mean, this is the best challenger draw we've ever seen. I mean, Murray versus um, Monfils in In the the first first round. round. It's ridiculous. It is a bit ridiculous. Then we had, um, on the flip side of that, I think we had like a, a Svitolina versus... Stephen's um, semi-final. Roos, we had, oh yes, a semi-final as well this week on the uh, the mm. one two five. So, I mean, it is undeniable that it's happening. I think it's a case where uh, the scheduling from the ATP and WTA is actually kind of allowing a bit more of this. So I think, for example, with the women's side, there isn't kind of the 250s or the tournaments that players can play. So players are dropping down. And on the men's side, I think it's a case that these second week tournaments where people have dropped out, it is giving them the opportunity to play Mm. in a challenger. So I think that's, for example, why kind of Tommy Paul would... That's example why there was that great challenger in Phoenix that happened because it was the players who got knocked out in that first week of Indian Wells before heading to Miami. So I think that's what's happening, what's causing it. Um, I think it shows that there's a lot of interest in tennis because, I mean, in Provence, it was quite stunning, the court they had and the crowd and it did not feel at all like a challenger. But in terms of like whether it's a, a good or a bad thing or why people are doing it, I think they're doing it because they haven't got the form. Um, but I think the reason why it's kind of not always a good thing is because it is actually causing players to then have to drop down a level below um, who would normally play it. So it's taking some of those money-making and points opportunities away from some of the lower-ranked players. So I think it's, it's, a, it's great in some ways for tournaments if they want to build their stature. It's great for players who haven't got form but are quite highly ranked and able to drop down. But the problem is, is that it's not great for your average tennis player And I think that is something which is a real problem is that these aren't supposed to be the spectacles that they are. These are supposed to be the places where people who are ranked kind of, you know, outside the top 50 um, are able to kind of play tournaments week in, week out um, and get their ranking up. And I think it's not necessarily designed for the top players to, to top up their ranking. So that's where I'd say, Joel, I have a bit of an issue with that kind of, I think um, Murray maybe jumped 10 points in the rankings Mm. from 52 to 42. And that feels a bit mad from a challenger. So I think that is a little bit of a problem there when it comes to who's able to play them. Yeah, I I, I agree. I think I was thinking about this earlier. And to me, you know, growing up, my view on challengers was 
this is where you go to kind of prove yourself before you make the jump to the tour and it was all about playing playing up and it feels increasingly like we're getting players play down um and I, as you said it feels like that, that is taking away the opportunities from you know those players who are on the you know the challenger circuit you know need to get in these draws I don't feel like we've necessarily seen at the moment, you know, challenger level players kind of be frustrated about kind of how stacked some of these draws are and whether that's kind of taking away, you know, their spots. But I certainly feel like the the kind of the view of it is that actually it plays both ways. It can play for the top top tier and it can play for the, you know, the, the, the players below. And maybe it shouldn't necessarily be the, the spectacle um, that it is at the moment. But I feel like that's going to be a hard case to answer for, you know, tournament organisers of these events. Um, the ATP, for example, they want to put on the greatest events possible and they're always going to try and hanker for players, the top players who are going to be trying to rediscover their form, coming back from surgery, whatever it may be. But um, I don't think it's going to stop anytime soon. And maybe maybe we just need more challenger events if, if this is happening and players are coming to these events from from both sides maybe we need more um, events to cater at this level yeah i think the challenger side on the atp they do do a great job there's always more than one going on of varying Mm. different levels and then you also have the itf events that kind of supplement that i think obviously what we heard reported um that it was possible that kind of top 30 players would be banned from 250s on the wta tour you know, they're obviously trying to stamp this out and trying to get players to play in the bigger tournaments rather than kind of have them be places to kind of pick up some ranking points and and um, boost your ranking. But I guess the question that I have with it is if you are able to pick up quite a few points from like a one two five, for example, in the WTA, then as I say, and as you joked about last week, the, the Maya Sharif effect, mm. um, where you're able to get your ranking quite high without actually playing big matches so it feels like you need people to be able to play up but you don't necessarily need people to be able to play down is what I think it should feel like a transition tour it shouldn't feel like you can be self-sufficient or like on this type of of tour tennis is a very cutthroat business and you either obviously you either make it or or, or you don't and and I think you know the challenger circuit the ITF circuit is very much a proving ground for that and um, I think you know that conversation has been around for for a lot longer than I think you know we're talking about at the moment with these kind of top players playing down but certainly it feels like it's losing that kind of transitionary essence that I feel like we've come and known to kind of signify as over the last decade plus yeah it feels like it's less supporting the the lower ranked players it's more allowing a top up for Mm. some of the higher ranked players but Again, I mean, it's been very entertaining this week and the story of Murray dropping down. It's still great to having see. Having a great week. It's, it's it so, is great to that's see. That's what's so and hard think, about it, I think, because it is, it is such a great to see these players in these environments. And the passion. They're, mm. they're happy to drop down to do that for the sport mm. and and for them to, to get a great result. And I think that's... Um, I mean, no one's more passionate than Andy Murray. So <laughs> wherever he wants to play, let him play, exactly. is what I say. And, and where obviously there are Ryanair flights for uh, for Judy Murray oh, to Oh, Judy to needs take. to be able to get there, of course. <laughs> yes. Um, but yeah, great question. Uh, listeners, make sure if you've got any questions for us at Tennis Weekly HQ, make sure to get them in. But for now, we're going to be moving on to talk about Emma Raducanu. Um Emma Raducanu, Chris, she's just had surgery posted. Um, well, sorry, had surgery in the last week or so. Um, she had it on both of her hands, a recurring injury on a bone. Um, she's been trying to manage 
uh, the pain and play through it kind of for most of the year. It's obviously not been working. We saw her pull out of uh, of of Madrid. And, you know, she wrote a nice kind of heartwarming message uh, to her fans. But she ultimately said, it pains me that I will miss the summer events. And I tried to downplay the issues. So I thank all my fans who continue to support me when you did, not knowing the facts. Look forward to seeing you all back out there. What do you make of this latest development in the in this saga? Uh, you know, we, we spoke last week and we were sort of almost, I feel, foreshadowing. So you certainly were sort of foreshadowing this being a potential outcome how do you feel now that now that you've seen it and now we probably know that we're not going to be seeing Raducanu definitely at the French Open and most likely at Wimbledon well firstly I think it's super important to say that I mean for someone at her stage of her career to have to have kind of three surgeries is, is obviously very worrying and we wish her all the best we hope that she is able to kind of recover really well and we really hope that we can see her on the court um whenever she's ready and whenever she's recovered. Um, but, but I mean, what I do think is a positive from this is that it was very clear at the point we were to speak about it last week that it, it wasn't something that could be managed. And my big question when it comes to this is, is why did it take as long as it did for her team to kind of come to this decision? And, and it's meant obviously missing Wimbledon, whereas if something had been looked at slightly earlier, the scheduling would have been different. But I do also think taking time out is not necessarily a bad thing. Obviously, this is not a break because this is because she needs to have surgery. Um, and it's obviously surgery on both hands and her ankle that she injured in Auckland. So there will be a lot of recovery that has to be done. And I, I think talking about when she'll be back is a little bit kind of a bit too soon because, I mean, she hasn't had a third operation yet, as far as we know. Um, she's had two of them. So I think it's a shame from the perspective that um, this has had to happen to someone so young who's actually obviously got kind of some some problems that can't be fixed through rehab. Um, but it is at the same time, it sounds like it's the right decision and it will be for, for the the, bad, the best of her career and she'll have a long one, I'm sure. And this is obviously very early in her career and it's, it's better to do it now than it is to do it later, I imagine. Yeah, I mean, she's obviously got so much time and so much, you know, potential and, um, you know... Uh, I'm I'm just hoping that she can come back and play the tennis, you know, that that she wants to play. I feel like as a British fan, we've just been I don't want to say very unlucky because it just feels like it keeps happening over and over, but you know, Laura Robson obviously had, you know, had to have surgery. It feel like felt like it really cut years off her, her career unfortunately and curtailed it. Carl Edmonds had knee, you know, knee injury issues, Andy Murray as well. I do think there has to be something to be said around how these players are managed at a young age and whether it might be that it's something that is specific to Emma Raducanu but I feel like these young players need to be managed in the right way and yeah. um, otherwise we get into these situations that I just don't think a player should be having surgery two surgeries three surgeries um, at, at 20 years old they need to be it's managed better they need to be managed better growing up it feels like and I'm not obviously not an expert in that but that would be the thing I would take from this is that these players yes they've got all the talent in the world but they need to be conditioned properly and I, I look at if I'm being really honest big fan of obviously British tennis but you look at the track record it's it's not the most glowing is it it isn't. It isn't. And I think that's such a great point because it is about being conditioned and managed, but it's also genuinely about your management. And where was the pressure? You know, when mm. obviously if she's not been in a position where she could play of, of being in some of these tournaments and playing injured, you know, it's, it's always very worrying when 
a player plays injured and it's very different if there's a bit of a niggle, they have some medical tape, but this is something quite fundamental um, yeah. when it comes to her hands. And it does beg the question as to where was that pressure coming from? And was it from agents? Was it from somewhere else? Was it from sponsorship? Was it Emma who really wanted to play? But then maybe someone had to say, well, actually, this probably isn't going to be for the best of you, um, for the best for you. And so that is, that's, that we have questions, Joel, don't we? But <laughs> what we do think is that Get well uh, it does seem like Get yeah, well and it, it was beyond <laughs> it was beyond the point of a normal injury yeah. situation. So there need to be some um, sort of intervention. Some yeah, yeah, and she did yeah she did a live from um from the hospital bed, which was honestly <laughs> hilarious. She was having pom bears, yeah, um, which I think a lot of our British um, listeners will relate to. They're actually um, crisps that are shaped like bears, um, and she was having a uh, a joke with her fans mm-hmm. on on live. So I think it's good that she's in great spirits, mm. and uh, yeah. Take as much time as you need, Emma. But the tennis does move on. We are going to Rome for the Italian Open. Uh, we've, we're running out of time, Chris, but we're going to quickly look at the women's and men's draws and make some predictions. First of all, the women's draw. Question for you. Are we going to get an Igor Sviontek versus Arena Sabalenka? Trilogy final is what I'm calling it for now. Why would you bet against it, Joel? I haven't. <laughs> I, I'm not sure I could bring myself to after seeing the way they've played this mm. last week. Um but I tell you what, if any, if there's ever a draw to test Eager, it might be this one because mm. she's got a French Open finalist in Sara Arana as a potential second very round true. opponent. Very, very true. As well as another French Open finalist, Anastasia Pavlenchenkova. Um, and then Svitolina's in the mix there, mm. as well as um, Bernardo Pera, who obviously put it together on some of the clay last year. And then she's got Kontovic, Samsonova. She's got Fernandez, so I think this is a. Uh, mm-hmm. th- I'm excited. It's by very this testing. Draw. What it's is it testing. also? I swear, Shiontek and Rabakina just—they always end up. I swear, in the same quarter, quarter. Final or fourth round. What is, go- what yes. is going on? Uh, there's a conspiracy theory there. We I need think to- it's the Wimbledon points not counting. Uh, Joel. Yes, I think that's why because she's a <laughs> six through eight. I will say though, very quickly, I did enjoy Alicia Parks is playing Annette Contivate. It's the battle of the indoor. The indoor court surface, uh, goodness, um, champions, champions, specialists. Yes. Do That's they it. not know? That's it. Yeah. Do they not know that there is not a roof in Rome? <laughs> what is going on? That, what is going on? Well, exactly. Maybe they can put some sort of a temporary mm. structure in place for that. But it's a great draw. I really think there'll be some fun ones. Yeah, I do think. Yeah, that top half certainly is very Stacked. tricky very very tricky yeah Sabalenka of course the second seed in the bottom half I'm looking at that third quarter as, as quite open with with Coco Goff in there yes Jesse Pagula is is probably going to make a, a go of it got Karolina Pushkova Kudometova who's also had a good run um, in Madrid is Garcia going to do something here Joel oh that's a tough one Poss- possibly uh, Petra Martic. It's always possible. Petra Martic, though, she, I mean, had a very good run in, in Madrid. So um, that's a tough draw for Garcia. You know, that would be quite tough. Um, yeah. And also, interestingly, you've got S- Sophia Kenin as well in the first round, could face Sabalenka in round two. Sloane Stevens, Podoroska. Yeah, it's all it's all going on. Where are you lying with your predictions then? Semi finals and final? I've gone for, unsurprisingly, Iga Sriantek. And then I've gone for I've gone for the seeding, Joel. I've gone for Yeah, I saw this. I've gone for Ons. Are you not Ons aware Chabert of the in, of the injuries she's been her calf injury that I feel like she's been suffering I, from recently? I I am aware of it, but I just think Rome, she plays some great tennis. Also, um, Bedosa, second round. I was like, 
I can see Badosa taking out Jabal there. You also, you also saw Badosa get into the final of Madrid. So <laughs> I think we'll take that one with a pinch of salt, Joel. <laughs> and then true. in my other semi-final, um, I've got the Rome specialists. I've got Pliskova mm. um, making it through to semi-finals there. And then I've got Sabalenka. And then I've got the same final as last week. And I've got a different result. Um, I think that the clay of Rome, I think it'd be three in a row mm. for Iga. What about you? Yeah, I'm going Sviontek Krachikova, Pagula, Pagula Sablenka. It was a, it was very much a toss up. I was thinking Pliskova, but I've changed my mind at the last second. But as the same with you, I, I'm fully expecting another Sviontek Sablenka. I just think there's streets ahead, to be perfectly honest with everyone else. And yes, Sviontek's draw does look harder on paper, but I think she's going to overcome it, get to the final. And I think she's going to defeat Sabalenka. I think the conditions play to her strengths a lot better here than in Madrid. So I'm going... So is this a, is this a mini French Open then? It if could well be. As well? It could well be. So yeah, I'm hoping, I'm hoping that happens. I mean, moving on to the men's draw, Novak Djokovic is in the draw. Yannick Sinner is also back. There is no, uh, there is no Rafael Nadal, but... Um, yeah, where do you stand on this? The fact that we've got now Novak Djokovic back in, you know, back in the game, back in, you know, the draw in Rome. What does that mean for for Carlos Alcaraz and his chances? Well, I think it's very hard to make a prediction mm. based on the last time we saw Novak Djokovic was not the Novak Djokovic that we necessarily are familiar with at all. Um, and so I think he's such an unknown quantity at the moment that I haven't gone for him. Okay, I've gone, I've gone for Holger from that section. Mm. And I thought Kachanov has been showing some great form. So that's one semi-final with the other one being Rublev rediscovering his Monte Carlo form and Alcaraz. And I've gone for a Runa Alcaraz final. And I just think based on uh, kind of the tight matches that Holger has been getting into and not always winning, mm. I think it might be a really tight third going to Alcaraz. But that is going way beyond the realms of what have been asked from a prediction. What have you gone for? There is some connections here and I'm not also convinced on Novak Djokovic. I've got Holger Runa, Yannick Sinner in my top half. I um, think Sinner's going to come back. He's going to do what he does in front of the Italian crowd and they're going to love it. Um, and then I've got Taylor Fritz. Taylor of course Fritz, you have. Carlos when do you Alcaraz. not, Joel? Mm. When do you not have Taylor Fritz in the mix? I think... Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if Alcaraz is going to have it all his own way. And, you know, this is a you know, third tournament in a row after Barcelona and um, and Madrid. I don't know if it's going to catch up with him. Um, having said that, uh, I've gone, yeah, Fritz Alcaraz. And my final is Runa Alcaraz, but Runa winning. I do think it's going to catch up to Alcaraz at some point. I'm hoping the final. And, I'd love that. Yeah. I think that would be a great final. You, The Italian crowd are going to absolutely love Holger Runa if he keeps up his... Uh, I feel like his his crowd his crowd antics throughout the uh the, it's going to be lively weeks. when I was there last year it was <laughs> very lively it's almost like a big party so mm. as long as Holger's ready to bring the bring the same temperament he's had on uh, on the clay court so far this season I think it will be very interesting if we have that well I would expect nothing less and we're going to stay tuned and see how Rome develops but listeners I hope you have enjoyed our latest episode of the Tennis Weekly podcast remember to subscribe to us to stay up to date on all the action to come from the ATP and WTA tours we're on Apple Podcasts Spotify and all major podcasting platforms out there 
And if you like what you're hearing, then make sure to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also follow us on social media or email the show. We're on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at Tennis Weekly Pod. You can email the show tennisweeklypod at gmail.com or check out our website at tennisweekly.co.uk. And we will be back next week at Tennis Weekly HQ for another tour catch up, looking back on all the action so far from the Italian Open in Rome. So I hope you can join us for that. But in the meantime, it's goodbye from Chris. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me. We'll see you again soon. We'll be right back.